We'll hear now the word of the Lord tonight from 1 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 23. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was saying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sene. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Gibah. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the man of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell them after him. Or, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gabeah of Benjamin looked. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard uh, that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond bet Avon. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. When I was in high school, I had a part-time job. I, I worked uh, for a pizza place called Papa Murphy's. There's still plenty of them around. I love that place. I uh, could, when I was younger, I could eat more of it than I am able to now, and it was wonderful. I, I really enjoyed the job. But in the course of that job, um, my manager gave me some interesting feedback one time. She said she was watching me work, 
And she said she noticed me that sometimes I would go to, to do something. I'd be walking in one direction, then I'd abruptly turn and, and go to do something else without having done whatever it was that I was headed to do the first time. And then sometimes, even as I was headed to the second place, sometimes I would abruptly change my direction and go and do something else. And she told me this, and I laughed because I knew exactly what was happening. I, I never realized this was happening, uh, but I realized that I was always trying to be very efficient, very strategic. Every step counted, no step wasted, always going to do the next right thing. But then something would come along, and I would think, and I'd say, oh, before I do this thing, I actually have to do that thing. And then I'd go and do that thing. But then I'd, I'd think, oh, but I actually forgot to do the thing that I was supposed to do earlier, and so I'd go to this thing over here. It must have looked very strange from the outside, but genuinely, I, I wasn't crazy as I was doing this. At least, I don't, I don't think I was. Well, I think that picture of me going here and there, hither and thither, to and fro, without ever actually accomplishing, became something of a, a metaphor for the rest of my life in many ways. Because I'm a guy who likes to start things, but not always to finish things. It isn't that I stop certain things. It's just that I don't actually finish them, and something else comes along that I find more interesting, and I go over to do that. I've done this countless times in all sorts of areas of interest in my life. Doing this is the right thing to do now, and then I turn and pivot and go to do something else. If, if you want to know what this is like, you might ask Andrew for just some input on what it's like to work with me on a regular basis. But the, the way this works, um, that's sort of my temperament. I think about a lot of things, and I go to do them, and maybe I don't finish them, but then I think about something else. Maybe you have this kind of a temperament, or maybe you have a kind of temperament where maybe you don't start things at all. Maybe you are worried, I, if I'm going to do it, I want to finish it. And so until you can really make the decision that you're absolutely committed all the way to the end, you don't want to do it at all. Or maybe you're somewhere in between. But I think this is a question all of us wrestle with. How do we discern what we should be doing? How do we discern the Lord's will in our lives and then go to do that? faithfully. Well, this is one fascinating story that really gives us some principles for thinking about this, about how we should act, how we should live, how we should discern and act upon the Lord's will in our lives. Our big idea is taken partially from the book of Joshua, but then partially from a verse that we have here. And I'll explain why that is as we go along. But our big idea tonight is this, be strong and courageous for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Be strong and courageous, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, um, the three points tonight just sort of correspond to that big idea. First of all, be strong and courageous. We're going to see that in the first section, uh, verses 1 through 5. And then second, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, verses 6 through 15. And then third, by many or by few. By many or by few is that third point in verses 16 through 23. So we start off with an exhortation in this first passage to be strong and courageous in verses 1 through 5. In the very beginning of this passage, we are seeing a very clear contrast drawn between Jonathan and his father Saul. Very stark contrast that, be drawn, that is being drawn here. Um, Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator, puts this uh, contrast really succinctly. He writes, Jonathan was moving, Saul was sitting. And that's really what we're seeing here. Uh, he goes on, Dale Ralph Davis goes on to explain some of what's happening. We're really not only seeing John who's just sort of a frenetic moving sort of a person. He's really doing something that's bold and brave and difficult. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis says the, the two mountains um, in verse 4, Bozes and Senna, um, these can be translated slippery and thorny. 
He's not just moving. He's not just doing something. He's doing something that's really very difficult. And specifically what we are seeing with Jonathan is that he's not just doing anything at all. He is taking initiative to do the very thing that God had told Israel to do. God had told Israel to drive out the peoples from the promised land. In taking up this activity, he was doing the thing that he, that he knew that God had told him to do, the very thing that Saul, his father, should have been doing. But where is Saul? Well, Saul, we read, is at the pomegranate cave at Migron. Now, the idea of a pomegranate cave, or there's an idea of a pomegranate tree. It's not entirely sure how to translate whether it's a cave or a tree. Trees sometimes are a symbol of judgment and justice. Like uh, there are different times where you see elders in the Bible who were uh, seated at the tree, and that's where they would issue their decrees. You know, they didn't have these big palaces they would be in and issue their decrees and make their judgments. And it would often be at a tree. But the idea of a pomegranate, pomegranate is a fruit that's regularly associated with luxury in Scripture. It's kind of like saying that Paul was reclining in the vineyards of Napa Valley. He's there sitting in a place of luxury and comfort and, is, and ease as his son is out there trying to pass the rocky crags of slippery and thorny, doing the thing that he was supposed to be doing. Saul is relaxing among fruit trees while Jonathan is risking his life. The other thing that we see about Saul in this passage is an emphasis on dwindled numbers. In verse 6, or verse 2, excuse me, we read that there were 600 men with Saul. And, and really, we have to go back to the previous chapter to realize that Saul is very acutely aware of his numbers of the men with him. And he's watched them dwindle over the previous chapter. If you go back to chapter 13, verse 2, just look over across the page. Read that Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. So there were 3,000 men of Israel. Saul took 2,000. 1,000 went with Jonathan. But then if you look down at verse 8 of chapter 13, we read that Saul waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And then again, we read this in verse 11. Uh, we read Samuel, when Samuel confronts Saul to say, why did you offer the sacrifice? Because that's what he did. We looked at that last time. Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, well, he's got to go and forced himself to do it, as he goes on to say. Because the people were scattering, Saul became impatient and offered that sacrifice. And because of that, he is rebuked and rejected by the Lord, by the prophet Samuel. And during that time, we read, if you read down to verse 15 of chapter 13, that number that started with 3,000 and 2,000 belonging to Saul specifically, it dwindles all the way down to 600. And that's still how many uh, Saul has in, verse, er, in chapter 14. He has 600 men with him. And with 600 men... Saul is not confident to move. But contrast that to Jonathan. Jonathan has two, himself and his armor bearer. Jonathan has two, and he goes up to take on the Philistines, not single-handedly, but double-handedly, just two people, whereas Saul can't think how he's going to muster up the strength to do this with 600 troops with him. Another factor that plays into how we are to interpret Saul comes up in verse 3. 
Do you notice the genealogy? I hope your eyes didn't glaze over as we went to a genealogy. That's tempting to do, I know. Uh, but the genealogy is actually really important. Let me show you one of the things that happens here that commentators are pointing out. We read that this genealogy included Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh wearing an ephod. Now, do you notice that they mentioned a brother in this genealogy? A genealogy should be a straight line of descent, right? This person begat this person, who begat that person, who begat that person. Well, now we're getting the inclusion of a reminder of a brother. Why the brother? Because the brother is Ichabod. The word Ichabod means no glory. It's a reminder of what happened at the very beginning of this passage. It was a, when the Lord pronounced judgment against the house, the priestly house of Eli. And in that, Ichabod was born to one of Eli's sons as uh, his father and his uncle were out on the battlefield dying and very soon his grandfather, um, Eli, would also die all in one day. And that left Ichabod alive. Ichabod was a symbol that God had brought judgment against the house of Eli to bring it down so that that household would no longer be priests before him. Bill Arnold writes, there's a genealogical detour here to highlight this no glory that is left in Israel. And like the priest of Eli, we are reminded that Saul's kingdom now has no glory. The glory has departed from Israel. And Saul here with 600 men is too frightened to go out to fight. You know, when you read this and you see Saul not acting, sitting, but you see Jonathan acting, doing whatever he can with just his armor bearer and going out to fight, it reminds me, at least, of the story of the parable of the talents. When Jesus talks about a master who gives his servants, one of his servants five talents, another servant two talents, and another servant one talent, and each servant knew that he was supposed to invest the talents that, that the master had given him and supposed to bring back a return when his master returned to him. Now, they're given different amounts. So when the five-talent beneficiary is able to make a return of five more talents and brings that to his master, his master is well-pleased, well-done, good and faithful servant. But when the other one who receives only two talents is only able to get two more talents, now that's still a 100% return, but still it's less than the one who is given five, the master is still pleased, well-done, good and faithful servant. The only way to get the exercise wrong was to do nothing at all. And that's what the one-talent person does. He buries his talent. And the master scolds him and says, you didn't have to do anything crazy. You could have just put this in a bank instead of into the dirt, and you would have had some return for me when I came. The only wrong solution was to do nothing. Well, how do we apply this? Well, the contrast here is that we are called to be brave not just to do anything, not just to do any imaginative thing that we might have in mind, but to do what God has called us to do. Now, I mentioned part of the big idea comes from the story of Joshua, from the book of Joshua. And if you remember the context of the book of Joshua, uh, the people of Israel are about to march into the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership for the conquest. They're supposed to start and hopefully finish. They don't finish it. That's why uh, Jonathan still has to take up this work of, of entering into the land and driving the people out of the land. And when Joshua takes over, he has big shoes to fill because Moses has just died. But the Lord speaks to Joshua at the beginning of this conquest. And he says in Joshua 1 verses 6 through 7, he says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 
only be strong and very courageous. Now, I want to just stop there for a moment. Because you might ask yourself, what are they supposed to do? How would you even begin something so audacious as to march in on seven nations larger than your own nation? To take over and drive out the peoples from the land. How would you begin to do such a thing? Well, the Lord doesn't give him complex battle plans, strategies about you're first going to go here, and then you're going to take this area, and then you're going to bring the troops around at this time. He doesn't say any of that. In verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it, from the law, to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. What Joshua was called to do was nothing crazy, nothing fancy, nothing audacious. He was called simply to obey the law of the Lord. And this is exactly what we are called to do as well. This is what Jonathan was doing. He was obeying the commission that had been given to him, and he was just going out to do what he knew that he was supposed to do. It wasn't crazy. It wasn't made up. He was doing the very thing that God had commanded him to do. Well, how then should we approach these hard tasks that God has given to us? Because if we're honest, the tasks that we're given, the commands that we are given are often very difficult. Well, this brings us to the second section, the confidence that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving in verses 6 through 15. And in this passage, Jonathan is saying to his armor bearer, the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And then he says something remarkable. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Now, one commentator, David Tsumura, really correctly writes, I think, he says, uh, when Jonathan is saying this, it may be that the Lord will work salvation for us, will work for us. He's not expressing some kind of a doubt in God's ability. I don't know. We're going to go see how this goes. We're going to see what's going to happen. He is rather confessing that God is not required to save them. God can save them, but he's acknowledging that God may not save them. They are doing what they are called to be doing, and they really don't know how this is going to turn out, not because of a lack of confidence in God's ability to save them, but simply to acknowledge that they are called simply to be faithful without any guarantees of what the results are going to be. And so he follows this statement. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It sounds a little bit like the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're hauled before Nebuchadnezzar. And they're, say, and they're asked, why didn't you bow down to the golden image? Now is the time. If you don't want to be cast into the fiery furnace, you must bow down now. And they say to the king in Daniel 3, verses 17 through 18, they express confidence. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not. And they go on to say, we're not going to bow down no matter what. The Lord will deliver us from your hand one way or another. It may mean that we die today, but if not, it's not because the Lord can't do it. He is able to deliver you. But whatever happens, we are going to do what God has commanded us to do. We are going to be faithful, even in spite of persecution and violence. What we're seeing here is a proper approach, a proper relation to God's providence. If you want to know how to discern the Lord's will, it's not some mystical sense that we're trying to figure out and pull out of the air somehow. 
It's a recognition that God is perfectly, powerfully in control of absolutely everything. And that he can save. He has absolute power to save at every time. But that is then coupled with a humility to recognize that we don't know how the Lord is going to work. We recognize that sometimes faithfulness leads to great suffering from God's people. And that's not because God has failed. Indeed, God does his greatest, mightiest works in and through the suffering of his people, especially in that this connects us in solidarity with Jesus Christ in filling up our Lord's sufferings is the way the New Testament talk about it. But Jonathan doesn't know what's going to happen. It may mean that kind of faithfulness that's going to require him to suffer, or it may not. And so what Jonathan does is he sets a test. Now, the test doesn't seem to be that he's either going to attack or not. It's really about how he's going to attack. If they say to stay down there, well, then they're going to wait for them. If they say to go up, well, then they're going to go up. He's committed to this task, and he's going to go do this task regardless of what the Philistines say in response. Because again, Jonathan knows exactly what he's supposed to do. And he's seeking to be faithful to those things. Now this again sounds like someone else. It sounds like Gideon setting out a fleece to confirm what God had spoken. But Gideon is much more tepid. He's trying to figure out, should I move? Should I really do this? Do I have to do this? And so he sets out the fleece, and if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, and then if the ground is wet and the fleece is dry, then he knows that he's supposed to act for the Lord. There's none of that with Jonathan. Jonathan knows where he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to be doing, and he goes out and does it. In verses 11 through 15, we see that the Lord opens doors. And the Lord gives a mighty victory at the hand of just two men, of Jonathan and the armor bearer. 600 men are sitting and not moving in a camp, and here's two men who are going up and trusting in the Lord that the Lord is going to do what the Lord promised to do, to give him victory in this battle. You see, when we read about this panic, the great panic that was all around them, the, uh, the trembling in the field, the panic in the camp, all among the people, this is actually one of God's promises. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 23, God said that the people will scatter seven directions before you. And we read here, and the language is very specifically uh, with the quaking of the earth and a very great panic on all of this. We're reading something that's written in the language of the Exodus, the victory over the Egyptians. This is meant to say God is still working in and through his people. He hasn't let his hand off the reins. He is still providing for his people, doing the great works that he promised to do. Now again, how should we apply this? Well, again, as we're thinking about how to discern the Lord's will in our life, I think one wrong application from this is to try to do something like casting lots by setting out some sort of arbitrary fleece to just identify something and say, well, God, if this happens, then I'll know that you want me to do the thing that you already told me to do. Uh, you know, maybe we ask God to show us some sign. Lord, if the next car that drives down the street is blue, I will know that you want me to do the thing that you have told me to do already. Or maybe we open up the Bible at random and point to a passage. You may have heard the story of the man who tried to do this and pointed to a passage at random and, and read, and Judas went out and hanged himself, and he thought, well, that can't be right. And so he, you know, tried again and opened to his Bible to another place and put his finger on another passage, and it said, and go and do likewise. Well, you, you cannot treat the Bible like a magic eight ball. You ever had one of those magic eight balls where you shake it up, and at the top a little window is there, and it says, well, signs are pointing to yes or something like that. 
We can't treat the Bible this way. God tells us what he wants in his word. God tells us what he wants in the law, and we have a commission. The Israelites had a commission called the conquest, to drive the people out of the land, to take full possession of the land where God had told them to dwell. We have a great commission that is not going to involve our shedding the blood of any, even though it may mean that our blood will be shed in the process as we seek to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded us to do. And so the wrong application is trying to cast some sort of a lot. The better application is to recognize what God has commanded us to do and prayerfully, prayerfully take the initiative to see where God is going to open doors. God doesn't always open doors. God doesn't always give our plan success, but it means that we are prayerfully and with initiative going out to do the things that God has called us to do. When pastor commenting on this passage, Richard Phillips writes this. He says, it is too easy and too common today for churches to do nothing in the face of great needs. Waiting for increased staffing, improved funding, enlarged membership, and denominational approval. Like Saul under the pomegranate tree, such Christians will always find their challenges too daunting to encourage action. Better for Christians to act daringly, acknowledging the possibility, even the certainty of failure, should the Lord not help, but knowing that God is often pleased to bless bold initiative and faith. And a little bit later, he goes on to say this. An analogy for us today might be for us to ask in prayer for an opening in our ministry or our witness, being eager to see God's hand in our early success and being ready to leap into the opportunities that God provides. I want you to think about people that the Lord has put in your life to share the gospel with. We shouldn't be praying, Lord, would you want me to share the gospel with this person? The answer is yes. He's told you that abundantly in the scriptures. I can answer that for you clearly from the Bible tonight. Yes, you should share the gospel with this person. Our prayer should rather be not, do you want me to do this thing you've already told me you wanted me to do? But Lord, open doors. So that we're looking for a crack. And when a crack comes, where we maybe see an opening, we, we try to get through it. And when the door opens wide, we rush through that door knowing that the Lord is able to save by many or by few. This is it. This is the Lord. I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know where this is going to end up. But the Lord is working. And I want to be faithful to do the things that God has called me to do. Do you see the difference between the proactivity, the prayerful proactivity, as we look to relate to the Lord's providence versus sort of a passive waiting? Well, God, let me know if you ever want me to do those things that you commanded me to do in Scripture. May it never be our practice. Well, the third section, we're seeing the way this story all turns out, by many or by few, as the rest of the army joins into the battle. In 1 Samuel 14, verses 16 through 23, in verse 17, it's, it's really sad that while um, Jonathan is out enjoying this victory, Saul is out counting his troops. So in, in verse 17, we read, then Saul said to the people who were around him, Count and see who has gone from us. Remember, again there, the people were starting to disperse. And so once again, Saul is worried about his numbers. Two people are out there already, right now, winning the victory. And he's worried, how many people do we have left? Because they've started to disperse again. But it's only in the midst of this that they discovered that Jonathan is gone. 
And when they discover this, again, Saul doesn't know what to do. So he says to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. The ark of God, suddenly we were told, and, and Hebrew narrative is just great at this. It'll just drop a really important fact just, just later on. You didn't know it was coming. It just hits you right between the eyes without seeing it coming. The ark of God is on the battlefield. Now, if you've been with us in our study of 1 Samuel, you know this is an abomination. The ark of God is not a magic talisman that we bring with us into battle. And that's the way the Israelites had treated it. They brought the ark of God against the Philistines. They thought this is going to be our magic weapon to get the job done. And do you know what? Because they despised the holy ark of God, God actually turned them over to their enemies. In fact, God, who is not contained by a box, was never contained by a box, actually allows his ark to be captured. And if you remember, then the ark went into the temple of Dagon and did hand-to-hand combat with Dagon. So every morning they'd wake up and the statue of their fish god was lying prostrate before the ark. God had his moment in that too. But the ark of God was never to be brought out with the Israelites into battle. And yet that's exactly what Saul has done. And that's exactly, if you remember, actually the moment when Ahitub's uncle, um, Ichabod, or, yeah, his brother, you know, that was uh, the, the one who was related to Ichabod. Uh, that's where Ichabod was born into all of that mess earlier. But here we are seeing Saul, who still knows what he's supposed to do, sees the Lord's victory, but still wants confirmation that he should move forward. And so that it's only at the very end of the battle, after Jonathan and the armor bearer have done much already, that finally these hundreds of troops join into the battle for mop-up duty. In contrast to bold Jonathan, Saul, almost entirely all the way to the end of this story, abdicated his duties. Jonathan acted with one other person. Saul refused to act with 600. Why the difference between those outlooks? Well, the answer is very simple. Jonathan knew that his success would never be about him. It may be that the Lord will save us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan knew this had nothing to do with him and his strength. But Saul thought it did have to do with him. He was looking at his resources, his troops, the people with him, and he estimated his chances, and he didn't, I don't think this is going to work. Which means that he was not willing to do the very thing that God had called him to do. And so in verse 23, when we read, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and again, that's a quotation that brings us back to the Exodus story. In Exodus 14, verse 30, um, one commentator points out, it's a a direct word-for-word quote. It's a reminder, this was one of the great battle days of the Lord. Uh, This story is told in the same language as the Exodus. It's a crossing over the Red Sea, and Saul missed out on it because he was too afraid to go until he knew, until he knew, that the Lord really did want him to do the things that the Lord had told him he wanted to do. Well, how do we apply this? Be strong and courageous, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. If you're someone who really does get caught up in what is the Lord's will for my life, I want to encourage you to read a a really excellent book by Kevin DeYoung. Um, Its title tells you a lot about what the book is about. Just Do Something. Just do something. And it talks about our propensity sometimes to get sort of lost in our thoughts and lost in our wonderings. What should I be doing? What should I do? What should I do with my life? Now, he doesn't advocate a cavalier approach to life. What he's saying is our life should always be regulated by Scripture. But what he's saying is that we don't live this passive life as we await some mystical sense of God's direction. 
In fact, the Reformation was actually really helpful in guiding the way that we think about the callings, the vocations that God puts on our lives. Previously in the Roman Catholic Church before the Reformation, and even still today, when you talk about vocations, callings, you're talking very specifically about priests or nuns or monks. Those are the holy vocations. And people get those when you have some mystical call to do some kind of mystical work. But what the reformers showed is that all of us are called. All of us are called to do work. Not all of us are called to be in full-time vocational ministry. But wherever you are, you are there not because God has just forgotten you while he focuses on the priests and the monks and the nuns. You are there because God put you there to do what God has told you in his word that you are to be doing in that location. Everyone has a calling in their lives. And what the reformers really drew out is that vocation is less about what God might have me do tomorrow. Should I take that job? Should I marry this person? Should I go on that trip? Should I do any of these kinds of things? Should I try to park closer or farther away from the building? These are not the things that God calls us in a vocational sense. Vocation is less about what God might have me do tomorrow and more about fulfilling the duties that God has given to us today. So you children, one of the main callings that God has put on your life is to honor your father and mother. This is the way that God has called you, has taught you that you are going to learn about what it means to love the Lord your God as you relate to him as your father who is in heaven. And there's even a promise attached to that commandment. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. And then as you grow, one of the lessons that we learn that, again, is taught in Scripture is that whatever you do, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Our children, our family are, are memorizing that verse together right now. It's a really important one. That goes with you throughout the rest of your life. Well, then when you get into school or work, the Scriptures tell you, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Do you see how that's not a question about what job should I take? What school should I go to? What program should I enroll in? And it's more about here I am now, and how should I do this as to the Lord and not to men in the place where I am right now? Now, those questions are important. We really should do the best we can with our lives to make the most out of our lives that we can. And if you think not just only about work, but also in the area of marriage. We talked in last week in Matthew 19, that the pursuit of marriage is the duty by those who do not have what the scriptures call the gift of continency, uh, the ability to contain not only our actions, but our desires. So we're told we should pursue marriage if it's opened to us, unless the Lord has given us self-control in that area. And then once we are married, the scriptures tell us exactly what to do. They're, the scriptures are filled with calls to be faithful to our spouses, and with the command, if possible, to be fruitful and multiply with children, as we talked about this morning. Now, again, we recognize that the Lord does not always grant those who want it, a spouse or children. But it's because we have both a high view of marriage and a high view of children that we recognize that that is a hard thing. That is a road of suffering that, for whatever reason, God's providence, someone is walking through. And as the body of Christ, we come around such people. We weep with those who weep. We bear one another's burdens. As we suffer with them, as they suffer with us in the areas of our suffering. The scriptures give us a lot of guidance on this. What about in evangelism? Again, pray for these opportunities to share your faith and pursue whatever opening the Lord gives to you. 
because it's not about you. It's not about your eloquence or your firepower of ammunition of the arguments you have to, to bring back to answer any objections. At the end of the day, it's going to be the Lord. And it may be that the Lord will work for you, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. But if not, you also recognize that in faithfulness, this may bring about suffering. But the point that the scriptures are always telling us is that even when we suffer innocently, suffer for our faithfulness, we can still trust the Lord. You know, as I look back on on my own life, and maybe you can testify to this as well, some of the greatest moments of peace that I have had in my life are in times when I am suffering the most intensely when I know that I am being faithful. When I know that it is my faithfulness that has led me into this place of suffering, because I know that it's, it's not because of my faithlessness, it's not because of my disobedience that other times causes other kinds of suffering. There's not nearly as much peace there. But when you're suffering faithfully, when you've done what the Lord has called you to do, and you're there, I, you know, when I was in high school, I wrote an article that was just talking about, we had someone write an article that says that no one is going to hell. And I tried to really winsomely explain that yes, no one who does not know Jesus will go to hell. And it was a firestorm. I had to go into the principal's office. I remember walking down the hall hearing my teachers talk about the hate that was in the, the newspaper. And I just felt such peace through that because I understood people are not going to like the gospel and the free offer of the gospel that was held out there, the, the hope of salvation that we have. But when you're in that place, there's such peace knowing that even if you're going to suffer, the Lord will be with you as he walks with you through the fiery furnace. So I want you to think, where are the places in your life where you already know what God wants you to do? You know what the Lord wants you to do, but you're wondering, should I? Does he really want me to do this? Lord, I'll put out a fleece. Well, the fleece, not much dew in the mornings in the middle of winter. I guess you don't want me to do that. That's not the way this should be. We should seek boldly to do what the Lord has called us to do without waiting for a sign, without waiting for more favorable conditions, without waiting for official approval. Be strong and courageous. Do what God has called us to do in the law and in his great commission, trusting that the Lord is absolutely capable of saving by many or by few. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about the call that you've put on our lives, we recognize that we are so frail and so weak that so often we fall short of the very things that you've called us to do because of our weakness, because of our fear. And we pray that you would forgive us, Lord. And we pray that you would make us bold to trust, to follow you wherever you lead us to go. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.